Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Raymond Hall is a former Air Canada captain. And uh, you'll hear Captain Hall talk about the Iran missile strike on the Ukraine International Airlines flight, which cost the lives of 57 Canadians and 176 people in total. Famous lawyer Gloria Allred on Weinstein in court. And her client, one of her clients, received $58 million in a sexual battery settlement. So Gloria Allred will talk to us about those two cases. Peter Downing is the leader of the Wexit Party, the Western Separatist Party, and Elections Canada has just given them the right to participate in the next federal election. We'll hear Peter Downing and Daryl Bricker, the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs Polling. And uh, we talked to Daryl about how the Conservative Party needs to go ahead as far as the selection of its new leader is concerned. From Haiti on the 10th anniversary of the massive earthquake, Anthony Robart from Global News. Anthony was there 10 years ago. And uh, you'll hear Anthony talk about how things really haven't changed very much for the people of Haiti in the last decade. That and more on this podcast. The, uh, the series of incidents that have taken place since the death of uh, Qasem Soleimani really was a terrorist. And his CODS force was declared a terrorist organization by the government of Canada. And uh, then we... uh, I just find it very hard. And we, you know, we think about the people on the plane and talk about them. And how things have changed in such a short period of time I had contacted my next guest, Captain Raymond Hall, retired Air Canada captain and, and lawyer. And I, I had, uh, and, and I've known Raymond for many years, and I respect him greatly. He's always been great, great to us. And, and Raymond, I contacted you um, a number of days ago about talking about uh, a new story that was out about Boeing employees having made fun of regulators over the, um, over the inspections and, and, and dealing with the regulators concerning the Boeing 737. Yeah. Right? And that was why we were going to talk. This is what we were going to talk about. And now we find ourselves for the second day successively talking about this tragic reality. And thank you for coming back on the show today. Can we just start with, because not everybody heard yesterday's program, and I, w- I, would, I would appreciate if you could just repeat to us what it is that that flight crew on flight 752 would have done at the airport when they were on the, before they got to the runway, before they got onto the plane. Walk us through the process that they went through to get that plane airbound. The first thing that happens is the dispatch office for the airline, air, airline files a uh, proposed flight plan 
that shows the routing of the aircraft and, and takes into consideration all the factors of the flight. That uh, flight plan is filed with the air traffic control unit of the local authority. That is then approved or not approved or amended or whatever by the air traffic control authority. And that flight plan then is passed on one way or another, uh, usually verbally, uh, to the flight crew. The flight crew takes that information and programs it into what is called the flight management system computer, FMS. And that includes the actual uh, departure runway, the uh, departure procedure that you would use, the, the routing after, immediately after takeoff, the climb out, the uh, air traffic control routing through the Iranian airspace, and then uh, onward across Europe, of course. And so that FMS program then is programmed in by one of the pilots and with the other pilot watching, and then it's confirmed by the uh, pilot. The pilot programming it in reads out what is actually in the box, and the other pilot confirms it. Then once the aircraft departs, takes off, the autopilot is normally engaged, and the uh, flight is controlled by the autopilot to fly that FMS route through the departure procedure up to cruising altitude and en route. And this is this is the routine that is carried out by flight crew after flight crew after flight crew. In virtually every modern aircraft on every modern route. And and it's just done standard because it has to be done that way because of the amount of air traffic. It keeps everybody separated. It's done in an organized manner that is proven to be safe and effective for decades. And, and it reduces the errors because you have this error correcting, uh, correcting mechanism by the pilots, by the air traffic control system, uh, by the uh, the airlines themselves. So, so it's it's all put there together, and it's been working efficiently for for decades. Um, what's it like to be on the flight deck and and the left hand seat, the captain's seat, where you spent so many hours? Um, what, First of all, I, I don't know what to, I don't know what to ask you, Raymond, because I, I'm I'm trying it, to stay it's away. It's a professional job, and, and I, yeah, I think you I'm, you, I, you really feel a satisfaction in being able to do that professional job, which is is somewhat demanding, yeah. uh, but it comes a, a lot easier with with time, with experience, of course. But the the professional job is a very uh, satisfying experience for almost every pilot that I've met. Would those pilots have been even aware? of that missile. In this particular instance, from what I've been able to discern from the information that's made available, the type of missile that uh, was uh, used exploded uh, some hundreds of feet, perhaps, in front of the aircraft. And you would have, ha there would have been, and the, the purpose of that is to display, is to deploy flak, metal shards of, uh, of uh, rods that actually penetrate the aircraft surfaces in thousands of places. Mm. So there would have been an, uh, no warning prior to the actual explosion of the, the missile. It's not, uh, uh, not visible. It would have come up from below. Uh, it would have exploded in front of the aircraft, and there would have been a blinding flash and probably concussion impact by, uh, the, uh, by the people on board. Yeah. The, you you dismissed uh, the Iranians' um, excuses and explanations, quote, end quote, from the very beginning, didn't you? 
Well, they initially had this disinformation campaign, and, and that's not surprising in the circumstances to uh, to try and chuck the blame for anything. They finally, the evidence became overwhelming, particularly by the wreckage. Two two pieces of information. First of all, they found the head of the missile uh, on the uh, terrain surrounding the debris, and secondly, the imp- the shard impact on the aircraft. Uh, the windows were completely destroyed and num- uh, pockmarked by by a number of uh, uh, pieces of metal that that hit it, and there were also, uh, uh, there's evidence of fire on the left-hand side of the aircraft, although the paint was gone, and shard pieces went through the vertical stabilizer, the fin, from one side right to the other. So it it was virtually impossible for them to deny it. So the the question then becomes, what is an explanation for what happened? Mm -hmm. And we know. Now we know what happened. Well, we we know we know that there was a missile. Now there's still many questions to be uh, to be answered. Right, and I've reviewed the routing of the aircraft. There's uh, the uh, routing is tracked by multiple computers, and there are maps that are available on the internet. You can see the routing of it, and and they the routing that the actual flight took was the normal flight plan departure called the standard instrument departure SID route th- uh, through the west, and then a gradual turn to the to the northwest. And that routing, unfortunately, took them directly towards one of the uh, Iranian military installations. Now, one of the problems I have with that, uh, with the, uh, the the entire process, is the people that are in those bunkers or in, in those tanks, the, the, the missile launchers are actually tanks. They don't see outside. They only see their radar screen. So the, they've got a two-dimensional display, and here's this aircraft coming straight at them. And so it's possibly... Uh, excusable for them to uh, think that it might be uh, uh, an offensive attack against them. But they should have some form of mechanism for coordination with aircraft control, particularly since the routing that the aircraft took was directly on the flight plan routing that is standard that was used by several flights that took off on the same morning before the uh, Ukrainian International Airlines flight. Well, that, that's the point, isn't it? That other other planes took that very same route, uh, and there were planes after the uh, Ukrainian Airlines right. uh, flight seven fifty two that that flew the same route. Am exactly. I am I right about that? I believe so. Yes. In fact, the aircraft, the airport did not shut down. That airport, of course, is a very busy airport. It handles nine million passengers a year. It's at the crossroads of Europe. Uh, Thirty-five different airlines, uh, passenger airlines, and eight cargo airlines use it. And of course, it's central to the Iranian economy, so they're they're not likely to shut it down uh, for safety reasons or for any. Uh, reason other than than an actual uh, serious threat mm-hmm. there and and who anticipated that there would be a problem with uh, the airports in Tehran for example as opposed to Ukraine where most of the recent uh, military activity has been taking place yeah well we did have uh, we did know there were issues uh, clearly between the United States and Iran uh, I want to ask you I'll take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk to Captain Raymond Hall who's also a lawyer and when we come back, and um, I'm just curious whether airlines would have issued precautionary directives to flight crews in Iranian airspace during the crisis, and uh, particularly maybe to those landing and taking off uh, in and from Iranian airports. And uh, there's also questions. I've seen this many times on email. I've seen it on Twitter as well. 
Should Iran have been avoided by major airlines for at least a few days, or should they just have been avoided by major airlines for some period of time? We'll talk to a former Air Canada captain, Raymond Hall, trying to trying to make sense of things that can't be made sense of because we have a sense of what the truth is, and we know that the Iranians have not been telling the truth. That much we know. Um, Raymond, would, would airlines have issued any precautionary directives to flight crews in Iranian airspace, given what had gone on in the previous days? Uh, there were certainly directives issued afterwards, right? But uh, beforehand, no. Uh, there's There are two components to it. First of all, there's the airline discretion as to whether or not to operate in particular areas, and, and uh, even Canadian airlines have had that uh, uh, issue before them, particularly uh, from my experience, I was doing a large number of layovers in Tel Aviv during the second end of FATA in the early 2000s, and I operated in, in and out of there uh, twice a month, and Air Canada elected to, to take their crews out of uh, Tel Aviv for certain uh, short periods of time during the uh, very difficult times. The second layer, of course, is the uh, the aeronautical features. Uh, there are what called uh, what are called NOTAMs, Notice to Airmen, that indicate uh, problems, uh, uh, potential issues with uh, safety in, in particular regions, and uh, there were no uh, restrictions, legal uh, regulatory restrictions, uh, that precluded the uh, flight crew from operating that flight. And as you may remember, the flight crew uh, had a total of over 30,000 flight hours. Yes. You have very, very senior people, including a flight instructor, on, on that particular and uh, And they had, they, had flown, they had flown that particular route many times. Many times, and there's no question but that they were totally in compliance, and, and the Ukrainian government has reinforced this. They were in total compliance with all the regulatory requirements of that flight. How does all this reverberate through the pilot community worldwide? Well, that's a very difficult question, right? Uh, we, we've had uh, circumstances where people have uh, had uh, lots of skepticism about operating to certain areas. I think the airlines are, are pretty congenial in that regard. If you don't want to go, you don't have to go. I know that I elected to fly into Tel Aviv during the uh, the second intifada. A lot of the flight attendants uh, were re, uh, given the opportunity to, to change their routes and not, not to fly there. I didn't have any particular problem with it because I, I had my finger on the pulse and I was really aware of what was going on there. Uh, but they, the instance of, of, of a missile uh, taking down an aircraft is, is not... Um, exceptional in the sense of uh, it's never happened before there as you recall there are over 25 instances of of uh, commercial aircraft being I was just going to point out that you I was just going to point out that you sent me an email yesterday and that staggered me that there've been 25 instances of, pl- of commercial airliners being shot down in recent history in recent history, and, and the majority of them were in troubled areas, like over Mogadishu and that, that sort of thing. But there's some really uh, interesting ones. One of the most interesting, of course, is the, the fact that the Ukrainians shot down a, a Soviet aircraft, Siberian Air uh, Flight 12, uh, 1812 in, in uh, 2001. The Ukrainians themselves shot down, by mistake, a commercial flight. The uh, U.S. Navy shot down uh, an Iranian Airlines flight in uh, 1988, uh, causing 290 deaths, so so it's not um, it's not unheard of. Let's put it that way. It certainly is an exception in terms of the statistics and, and that sort of thing. But mistakes happen, and and that's what the problem is. And and I think the mistakes happen 
primarily through a lack of coordination between the various facilities, the military and the government uh, institutions that are not able to communicate effectively about the uh, required information as to what, what flights are what. Of course, the most recent shoot-down was Malaysia Flight 17 over um, Crimea, where the Russians uh, uh, shot the triple seven out of the sky right right in Ukraine, and and uh, they're still denying that, of course, but the evidence is overwhelming that 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 was the case. It's just uh, it's absolutely it's horrific, and 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 then you think about you put it in personal terms, in human terms, and you think about the individuals, you think about families that are on the plane together, and they they died in that way, and it it just wrenches in every fiber of your body. Raymond, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk to us yesterday and today, and we'll get around to that issue of uh, Boeing and uh, the exactly regulators right. another time. But I thank you so we much. Speak in more favorable times. Yeah, more favorable times. Thank you, Raymond. No problem. Thank Take you, care. Raymond. All. Uh, Harvey Weinstein in court in New York and facing court in Los Angeles. Weinstein was also challenged, threatened by the New York judge for texting while he was in court. Also, Bill Cosby's conviction was upheld in Pennsylvania, plus likely the largest court settlement in U.S. history for one employee in a sexual battery and sexual harassment case reached $58,250,000. And uh, Gloria Allred was the lawyer for Mahim Khan in her suit against billionaire Alki David, or David, I'm not sure how you pronounce the last name. And, uh, of course, Ms. Allred represents uh, quite a few women who uh, are plaintiffs, against Weinstein, and we know about her engagement with uh, putting Cosby where he belongs, so we're always happy when Gloria Allred has time for us. Thank you, Ms. Allred. Thanks for having uh, the time for us today, and must be tremendously satisfying in a, in a personal and professional way to see Weinstein in court. Well, it's very satisfying that the criminal justice system is finally uh, moving along and uh, causing him to have to be accountable in a court of law. And that's what's important. By the way, I always accept your invitation to be on your show whenever you invite me, if, if scheduled permitting. And thank you so much for the honor of being on it, because it's a very important show to victims and to many other people who care about victims and want to support them. Yeah, you're very good to us uh, with your time. Thank you for that. Harvey Weinstein borrowed a page from Cosby, didn't he? Uh, Cosby had a cane. Well, Weinstein Harvey had the Weinstein, walker. You know, there are very there are similarities between the two cases, Roy. One of uh, in the Bill Cosby case, one of the uh, decisions by the judge that was extremely important was the court's decision to allow what they called in Pennsylvania prior bad act witnesses to testify. In other words, other witnesses who alleged same or similar conduct by Mr. Cosby, including drugging and sexually assaulting. And some of the jurors, after he was finally convicted in the second trial, did say the, the testimony of some of those other prior bad act witnesses, and by the way, I represented the majority of them, was very important to them in deciding whether or not to convict Mr. Cosby. Now, in New York, in the Weinstein case, uh, they're called not prior bad act witnesses, but they're called Molino witnesses. That's the name of a case that allows such witnesses in a criminal case. But essentially, it's very similar. It's, you know, other witnesses who allege, uh, you know, perhaps uh, a motive, a scheme, a plan, similarities uh, between what he is alleged to have done to the two persons who are alleged to be victims in New York in the Weinstein case and what happened to them. 
So now we know that, uh, and I do represent uh, three witnesses in this case. Uh, I represent one who is a, of the two for whom charges were filed. That's Mimi. She's alleged to be a victim uh, of Weinstein. Uh, I also represent Annabella Shora, who is uh, a well-known actor, and she is going to be testifying on the issue of the allegation of sexually predatory conduct. Uh, and then I also represent another person who is going to be a witness. So this is an extremely important case with a lot of similarities. Uh, but, uh, you know, and in by the way, in the Cosby case, they also had a woman attorney, both in the first trial and the second trial, as part of the team. Here they also have a woman attorney as part of their team. Uh, it didn't help in the Cosby case. So we'll see whether or not uh, it helps. Uh, in this case, People versus Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Now, you represented Mahim Khan against her billionaire former employer and reached a settlement of more than $58 million. Uh, well, I, actually, it's even better than that, Roy, because this this case that we brought against Alki David, a billionaire, uh, on behalf of Mahim Khan, it wasn't a settlement. It was a verdict by a jury in Los Angeles County uh, Superior Court. And so that's even better. It's, as you say, it, it may be the largest sexual harassment punitive damage award in American legal history. We haven't found any on the record larger. Uh, and uh, we alleged on behalf of Ms. Khan sexual battery, battery, and sexual harassment. And uh, they decided, this jury, that he should pay $8,250,000 in compensatory damages and that he acted with malice towards Ms. Khan, making her eligible for punitive damages. We asked for $50 million in punitive damages. That's damages to punish him for conduct which the jury finds is shocking to the conscience of the community. And they, the, the verdict did deliver and did uh, come back with a verdict that we requested of $50 million. So that's a total of $58,250,000. And about a month before that, a month and a half, we had another client that we represented, whom, and we alleged that he had sexually harassed her. That's Lauren Reeves. And there, again, we won another jury verdict. That was $5 million. So now he is owing $63 million, uh, 250000 just in these two cases alone. I have about 30 seconds. What did he do to uh, Ms. Kahn? Well... There well, what were, did he not do, uh, I guess? You know, many allegations of what he did uh, to her, and um, some of them are frankly just too disgusting to even say on the radio no. or to say on television. But <laughs> she managed to suffer through them, and, uh, and then she decided to take action to vindicate her rights, and we're glad that she chose us for that. Uh, and we did. Uh, but it did involve some things that obviously are so bad that uh, that's why the jury came back with the verdict that they did. Right. Uh, I do have time, uh, 10 seconds now. If, if uh, Harvey Weinstein is convicted in New York, he goes to prison, right? Well, we don't know what the court will do. If he is, if he is convicted of sexually predatory conduct, mm-hmm. and that, in other words, that would involve... Uh, if. In other words, if they believe Annabella Shore and at least one of the two victims, he could be sentenced to life in prison. Uh, whether he will be sentenced to life in prison, we'll have to see, because we don't know if he's even going to be convicted. All right. He has a highly paid 
experienced defense team. Mm -hmm. He had five defense lawyers sitting in court the other day when I was there. By the way, they tried to exclude me. They were unsuccessful. The, the court refused to. Okay, Ms. Allred, I have, to, I have to stop. You yeah. know how it goes. You hosted a radio show yourself. Um, I know. I understand. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for your time today. Elections Canada has granted the Wexit Party, the Western Canada Party, uh, separatist party, eligibility to run candidates in the next federal election. Peter Downing is the founder of Wexit, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Do you mind when people say, uh, call it a separatist party, which I just did? Yeah, yeah, we are uh, we are a separatist party. We are a Western separatist party. We uh, do for Western Canada what the Bloc Québécois does for um, Quebec at the federal level. Peter, how ready are you? Elections Canada just green-lighted candidates for the next federal election. How ready are are you and uh, how prepared is Wexit today? I think right now, uh, right now uh, we have all the infrastructure in place. We are just opening up our nominations process now for uh, the 104 candidates across uh, Western Canada. So uh, the 42 writings in British Columbia, the 34 in Alberta, and the 14 in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, respectively. So we already have two candidates selected. Um, so there's just 102 more to go. So in the event of any by-election between now and the next general election. We will have a candidate ready to go with strong support, strong volunteer base, uh, funding base, and uh, somebody who's got really deep ties to the community who uh, can provide proper political representation for Western Canadians. So your target would be the Conservative Party voter in the last federal election. Fair statement? I, I think that that's definitely part of... Um, I mean, it was, it was the majority of Conservative Party voters in Western Canada were saying... They're proud Canadians on October 21st, but if Justin Trudeau gets re-elected, they're going to be separatists on October 22nd. So that forms part of our base. Uh, the other part of the base is a lot of uh, new voters or a lot of people who haven't been particularly interested in politics necessarily, maybe because of you know the empty words or empty promises or trickery or deceit or all the things that we associate with politicians. And you have a lot of people who are affected, especially in energy and agriculture industries, who are now taking a renewed interest in politics um, that uh, that form a, another large part of our support base. So uh, we are drawing a number of people who uh, have supported the Conservatives in the past and a number of people who've never really been interested to vote. So uh, you're sounding to me a lot right now like the leader of the People's Party of Canada, who was on my show leading up to the October 21st federal election and who... Uh, said uh, repeatedly, Maxime Bernier said repeatedly, essentially what you're saying, what makes you think that your success will be greater than that of Mr. Bernier and the People's Party? They weren't able to elect anybody. Well, I think part of it, well, there's two parts to it. If you look at the target market of voters in Western Canada and Eastern Canada, the voters in Western Canada, uh, conservative voters in Western Canada, the referendum, the, the election referendum was basically to try to get Justin Trudeau out. So they weren't in any way particularly interested in uh, splitting that vote. In Eastern Canada, when you talk about lower taxation, smaller government, um, you know, less funding for social programs, that's not necessarily what a lot of Eastern Canadian voters want to hear. So it it seems, just from my own opinion, and, and I think it's somewhat educated, is Maxine Bernier and the People's Party were trying to sell a product to Eastern Canada that Eastern Canada wasn't interested in. But and they and also they also had candidates they had candidates in in all the Western writings too. And again, for as I just mentioned, um, 
the, the the ballot box question in the minds of the Western voter was really, what does it take to get Justin Trudeau out? Mm-hmm. So looking at the most likely path for that would have been the Conservative Party. So now you've got voters in Alberta and Saskatchewan who have 100% rejected the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, and uh, we, we have, you know, they, they elected Conservatives. The Conservatives now are looking for a new leadership. Uh, they're looking for a new leader um, who they've already come out and said, is it's more to the point of appealing to progressive voters in eastern canada so it's one of those things that western canadian voters already recognize the conservative party of canada has taken the west for granted and um i think the other difference is and it's a slight difference but an important difference where the people's party of canada has focused on a number of things um such as immigration border control uh globalism which which we agree with them on um our focus is a little bit more industrial it's more in terms of the energy and the industrial sectors that people work in. And I think that message resonates with people a lot more. I think they do care about some of those secondary issues. But the number one issue is jobs, people's jobs, people's livelihood, their ability to pay their rent, their ability to pay their mortgage. And that is what we are addressing. Well, you'll have the opportunity. Um, Elections Canada underscored that to go before the people of Canada come the next federal election. And as soon as you have a declared candidate, you can participate in any by-elections as well. Peter, thanks for the time today. I'm sure we'll be talking many times. You're very welcome. Likewise, right? Great talking to you. All the best. Peter Downing, the uh, founder of Wexit. I don't know how realistically long it would take for Wexit supporters to achieve what they want. In Quebec, 40% of Quebecers are at any time ready to support separation from Canada, but when push comes to shove, they don't. Look at... uh, 1980 and 1995, and uh, there hasn't been a referendum in the last 25 years in Quebec, although there have been Parti Québécois separatist governments in the province. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He's also the author of The Big Shift, about how immigration has changed Canadian federal politics. Daryl, thank you for the time. And let me start with your book, The Big Shift, which details how immigration and an aging population has changed and continues to change the political dynamic in this country. What's the most fundamental point the book makes? The most fundamental book, the po- uh, point the book makes, uh, Roy, is that the way that you used to win in Canadian politics has changed. So uh, in the old days, uh, what you had to do was you had to win uh, in Quebec primarily and then win enough of Ontario and you could form a national government, which is basically what the Liberal Party did in the last election. But for um, conservative parties, it's not really the same methodology. They have a different methodology, and it's really winning in Western Canada and then winning in the suburbs of the major cities, particularly the cities in Ontario. Uh, So where the conservatives failed to win, where they failed to carry, was the area that we call the 905, which, as your listeners know, is that, that belt of geography that's defined by the area code around the city of Toronto. That's where the Conservatives failed, that's where the Liberals win, and that's where the, uh, uh, the Conservative Party has to do much better next time. So basically what John Ibbotson and I were saying in the big shift was, don't focus on the old way of winning, focus on the new way of winning. Yeah, uh, it, it's a really changing dynamic in this country. But here we are with the Conservative Party of Canada, two and a half months after the election, uh, launching its search for a new leader. What does the Ipsos polling suggest, the ideal leader a leader of interest to Canadian voters in those very regions you mentioned where the Conservative Party did not do well, what does that leader need to bring to the table? 
Well, they need to really bring three things, three major things. The first one is a sense of confidence. The second one is a sense of competence. And then the third one is to be contemporary, to be aligned with contemporary Canadian values. On all three of those issues, Andrew Scheer was found wanting, which is why he lost the election. And we're talking again about the, the regions of Canada where the party clearly did not accomplish what it set out to accomplish. Um, and and those, those regions are still available, but the next leader of the Conservative Party has to recognize what you just said. So we have uh, the names of Rana Ambrose, Peter McKay, Jean Charest, Pierre Polyevre mentioned, Brad Wall has been talked about, although Mr. Wall has said he's not interested, no thanks. But if you take that small group, and there will be more as we know, but if you take that small group, is anybody of that in that group uh, more than likely to be able to address the uh, requirements of the voters in the 905 and 416 areas that you mentioned? Also the voters in Quebec, because Jean Charest may be in the picture. I think all of them have the potential to do that, certainly better than, uh, than Andrew Scheer uh, was, a was able to do. But, you know, Roy, this, this really is a sort of a two-step process. The first step is you've got to win the party. And as, as we know, uh, um, you know, the, what is the modern Conservative Party is really a shotgun marriage between the old Reform Party and the old Progressive Conservative Party. And those elements still sort of resonate and, and even resonate among some of the candidates that you have. Although the Progressive Conservative Party is really becoming more of an historical phenomenon, I would argue, rather than a contemporary phenomenon. So it's, it's, it's not correct to actually talk about the Progressive Conservatives and align that with what the new 905 is, because they're really not the same thing. Mm -hmm. The old Progressive Conservative Party was basically the Liberal Party dressed in blue. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of party that has to emerge. And, and I would argue that all of the candidates that you mentioned, you want to throw in Aaron O'Toole, I also think is a potential contender since he came in third in the last re race. All of them have the potential to do what, uh, what the Conservative Party needs to do. But the key in all of this, Roy, I would say is that uh, can one of them be able to get past those two factions in the party? Because you have to win the party before, you, uh, before you're able to uh, uh, contest a national election. So, Daryl, now that uh, Elections Canada has granted the, uh, the Wexit Western Canada Separatist Party eligibility to run candidates in the next federal election, we just talked to Peter Downey about that, um, are they the joker in the deck for the Conservatives, or will they largely fill the same uh, amount of space the People's Party filled? Well, that's that's the real question. Are they the new Reform Party, or are they the, uh, or are they the uh, the, the People's Party? Uh, time time will tell. Uh, the problem that the Wexit Party has is it's a bit of a contradiction. Uh, the uh, uh, Canadians, um, and even uh, let's just talk specifically about Albertans. There's definitely uh, a, a a desire in um, in Alberta to uh, have the agenda of the province better addressed than what's being uh, what the presentation and the, and the leadership of the Liberal Party's uh, been able to provide. I mean, you couldn't have a more universal rejection than we saw in the last election campaign. But that doesn't mean that people in Western Canada are not patriots. In fact, they're among the, some of the strongest patriots in the country. So the real issue that, that the Wexit Party is facing is they may be too big an answer for too small a problem. It's a problem that could probably be fixed by the right leader, particularly of the Conservative Party, and a different political agenda, a different uh, uh, kind of big shift way of winning the election campaign may be able to answer 
uh, the questions that the people in, in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan have, as opposed to really contemplating uh, separation from the country. Uh, when you take a look at what's going on in Quebec, or did go on in the province of Quebec uh, around the separatist movement, we were talking about a much larger cultural survival question than we were talking about, um, you know, uh, a question of public policy that discriminates against the biggest industry in, 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 uh, in, in on the Prairie Provinces, particularly in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And if a government can come uh, forward that's able to find a way to reconcile uh, you know, economic growth for the, uh, the oil and gas industry with the desire of the Canadian population to be able to deal with, for example, climate change, then all of this kind of dissipates. And what it is that the Western uh, producers want to create in Canada starts to happen. So the problem is that it seems like a bit of a flash in the pan right now. There has been historical precedence for this, the Reform Party being the best example. But uh, it's, it's really hard to see how this fits into a separatist kind of agenda, because even the Reform Party itself was not talking about separating uh, mm -hmm. from the country. Yeah. Daryl, what about the, uh, the Liberal Party? Now, what they don't need is any more scandals uh, surfacing around their leader and the Prime Minister. That would only make life for the Conservative Party easier. But I'm wondering if the Liberals are simply vulnerable after October 21st, of last year, if the Conservatives can avoid a series of Ides of March moments as they select their leader, um, are, are, they, are, are the Liberals on the back foot because of what we found out about Trudeau over a period of time? Well, I, I think it would be fair to say that the, uh, the election campaign and the Canadian electorate was not kind to the Prime Minister and, and, and the Liberal Party. They lost the popular vote. Uh, they lost significant parts of the country. If they hadn't, if they would have even split the 905, they wouldn't have been the government. They wouldn't be the government right now. Uh, so uh, the question is, did they learn any lessons as a result of that? So the challenge that the prime minister has is he has to find a way to get over uh, these issues of national unity. Uh, that confront the country in, in a way that we haven't seen since the mid-1990s. And he also has to reestablish confidence with Canadians about, about having a plan for moving the country forward, particularly on the economic front. And this government, if anything, has not really shown economics as being uh, the thing that, uh, that uh, you know, really keeps them up at night. Uh, they, they tend to worry about another set of issues. So there's a misalignment with the Canadian population on what the party cares about and what Canadians care about. Uh, will the Conservative Party hand them such an easy win the last time, the way that they did uh, back in October in, of, of 2019? I don't think so. Uh, this time around, what they've done, if, there's a, uh, if the Conservative Party um, is able to attract in a good field of potential leadership candidates, and it looks like this time they will in comparison to the last time, uh, the next election is not going to be a layup for a Liberal Party. It will be very closely contested, very a hard-fought election campaign in which people um, uh, at this stage of the game don't see a lot of momentum behind the Liberal Party. All right, Daryl, appreciate the time always. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Ray. Daryl Bricker, the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, his book that he co-wrote with John Ibbotson is The Big Shift. Uh, yeah, the Conservatives are going to, they, they officially, I mean, it, it's out there now. You can contribute the money, you can pay the money to become a candidate, you can get involved in it, as long as they don't create a whole bunch of, you know, Lift the toga and slam in the knife, metaphorically. Moments uh, heading t toward the leadership. Uh, I, th I think they have a really good chance of uh, connecting with Canadians. We'll see. Anthony, what was it like for you arriving in Haiti 10 years after the horrendous earthquake? It must have been an emotional experience. 
Yeah, Roy, absolutely. It's putting it mildly, I think, because what happened 10 years ago, uh, it stays with you. I mean, it, it's so fresh in my mind. And so arriving here, it, in many ways, it looks a little different. The rubble has been cleaned up. But at the same time, you almost get the sense that nothing has changed. And, and the more people you speak to, you get that feeling as well. There is an absolute unbelievable level of frustration and anger uh, and sadness. And so it, in many ways, it's, it's hard to believe that it has been 10 years. But of course, you know, thinking back to 10 years ago, um, it was emotional then and it continues to be in many ways because, uh, look, these stories never leave you. What we, we showed up 10 years ago, uh, two days after the earthquake. So obviously it was incredibly fresh and you know, uh, I know this is disturbing, but still bodies on the streets and people digging out with their bare hands in some cases through the rubble, looking for survivors, looking for loved ones. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing to come back and to see these stories and really to find out, you know, the question I wanted to answer, at least to look at, was how much progress has there been um, and how much you know, how much of a lack of progress? And that's the big question that we are answering here. I mean, uh, we're at Canal, which is a, a settlement just outside, about 15 kilometers outside of Port-au-Prince. And this was actually set up in response to the earthquake in 2010. So the people who came here, uh, most of them lost everything where they were living. And they were effectively told to come here in some cases. This was sort of uh, a, a refuge for them. Uh, some promises uh, were made of permanent housing eventually. But you look around here, you walk around, it is, you know, these makeshift homes. Most of them have some aspect of concrete, some cinder block. But the home I just was at, uh, if you can call it a home, but it's this woman's home and there are six people who live there. It is nothing more than a tent from uh, the USAID. And it, it's been there for 10 years. And she lives there with her two kids and two other family members or three other family members in a space that is probably, I don't know, 10 feet by five feet. It is unbelievable in many ways for us to to even imagine their day-to-day life. And, they, you know, everywhere you go, people describe just a life of, of sadness and frustration they feel. And you keep hearing this over and over again, the lack of hope that people feel. So you essentially are back revisiting what you saw after the earthquake 10 years ago. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's, it's amazing to revisit some of the places uh, that I saw 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the once were tent cities now have been cleaned up, although, you know, every so often you'll, see, you'll still see signs of the earthquake. Uh, the rebuilding, in some cases, has, been, you know, has taken place. But it, it's been so slow and um, in some cases absolutely non-existent. Uh, you know, that being said, there are stories of hope. And that's what's kind of rewarding because, look, there's so many sad stories to tell. We all know that. Uh, we managed to track down, uh, 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 well, he's now a young man. But 10 years ago, I met him at an orphanage in a school that had collapsed. And he lost his brother just a couple of days before. His name is uh, Francisco August. And obviously incredibly emotional at that time. We tracked him down. He is 
a recent graduate with a master's degree from Auburn University in Alabama. He just started a job this week, incredibly, uh, at a software company in Oklahoma. So this is a, a young man who, who came to the United States five years ago. And, you know, to hear him now and see him, it's, it's amazing. Because, the, you know, every so often you'll, you'll see these stories of success. But, you know, the honest truth is it's so few and far between. Anthony, Canadian financial assistance for Haiti after the earthquake was significant, as was other international uh, assistance. Do people speak of that, and is there any evidence of how those monies were, in in fact, spent to the benefit of the people of Haiti? Well, Roy, that's the question we're trying to answer. If you remember that time, Canadians were incredibly generous. They uh, donated about $220 million, and that money was actually matched by the federal government. So more than $400 million from Canada alone, but you look around the world, uh, they estimate more than $13 billion was given. Uh, look, it, it's an, a massive amount of money. You look around and you, you try to find examples where the aid money went over and over again. People continue to say and feel abandoned by the lack of progress, by any sense of where the money went. A lot of the, the money, the Canadian Red Cross say they spent all of their money it took a long time for other organizations to disperse that. There was a lot of mismanagement, misspending. A lot of it went to administration, salaries for all these organizations. Very little, interestingly, went to the Haitian government, which, you know, you hear two sides of it. Because on the one hand, there, the, the, difficulty, the difficult balance to empower the Haitian people, to give it to the government, to allow them to spend it, but there's such a lack of trust in this country, and there's been so much corruption over the years that that is one of the main arguments why it was spent and dispersed by other organizations, NGOs. Um, so, look, there, there have been, there's been a lot of money spent in uh, Ganaive, which is a little further away from Port-au-Prince. There was a hospital built by, you know, with Canadian money. It was built away from a lot of things to protect, you know, a lot of the people from landslides, from other, other uh, natural disasters. The problem is not as many people live there. Therefore, this newer hospital isn't, isn't occupied as much. So at the end of the day, you look around, you're looking for development, and uh, it's hard to find. Well, you've painted a, a very realistic, stark picture, Anthony, and we would have hoped, all of us think globally would have hoped, there would have been far more progress after 10 years. It's a wonderful story about Francisco Auguste, but then when you look at the big picture, which you've just painted for us, there's so much more that needs to be done for the people of Haiti. Thanks so much for uh, spending the time with us today, and we'll look for your reports on Global News. Roy, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.